If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, I hope you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 10. We are going to camp out verses 25 through 37 this morning. We briefly looked at this uh, last week, and we're going to uh, finish up on this text this morning. I'll explain that as we go. So Luke 10, very familiar story to you, uh, verses 25 through 37. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Luke and chapter 10, starting in verse 25. The Holy Spirit says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. When you hear the phrase, Good Samaritan, I wonder what you think of. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Good Samaritan. Two words that first century Jews would not put together, to be sure. But does it, what does this phrase mean for us? People 2,000 years removed when we use it. This is an idiom that's just just part of the English lexicon, right? That we might mindlessly use along with a host of other idioms in various settings and conversations. Whether one is familiar with the Bible or not, Good Samaritan is a phrase everyone has heard, right? And has likely used it themselves. Typically, we use it to refer to someone who does an extraordinary good deed. For example, if you were to search Good Samaritan in Google and on the news, you'd find that phrase in a plethora of headlines. Now, I did, this is what I did. I searched it on Google, clicked that little tab that said news, and this is what came up for this, just this week. For example, Good Samaritan in Cobb County rescues victim of burning car. Florida Good Samaritan discovers 150000 worth of cocaine washed up on the shoreline and hands it to authorities. Good Samaritan turns in found wallet. Good Samaritan helps rescue child screaming for help in the woods. And this happened to Warner Robins. Good Samaritan helps find lost kayaker before dark. Good Samaritan rescues dog puppies found in Kentucky Creek. Good Samaritan's cut seatbelt rescue man whose car landed in Bear Creek. Now you can find page after page with headlines like this. 
In these cases, good Samaritan refers to someone who does something to help someone else or does a good deed that seems to go above and beyond, right? Isn't that how that, that was used in those news headlines? Is, is that the primarily what you think of, maybe, when you hear that phrase? As I said, even people who have very little knowledge of the Bible likely know that the, that the phrase comes from the Bible. They likely even know the basics of the parable. And if you were to ask most people, Christian or not, what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about, I think you'd get the same basic kind of answers. Most people would likely say it's about helping someone who is in dire need, like in those news stories. If you see someone with a broken down car, you should what? Help them. If you see someone drowning, jump in and save them. In other words, when you come across these emergency situations and you can help, you should do that. Some might say the parable is really just about being nice to one another. Don't be a jerk. Be nice to people, whether you know them or not. Be nice to the waitress and the person who's making your coffee or your next door neighbor or whatever. But is this really what Jesus is getting at in what is perhaps his most famous parable? Surely he would want us to leap into action, right? <laughs> we see someone in an emergency situation. Surely he would want us to be nice to people, especially when the person is executing a function that is serving us, right? Like a waiter or a cashier. But he wants to get to more than that here. To put it another way, Jesus actually wants to confront us with how we love people and ask us the self-evaluation that causes us to reflect on how have I been a neighbor in the past. What if, as Del Ralph Davis suggests, this parable is not simply an example for us to follow, but told in order to expose our lovelessness and lead us to repentance? Because here's the thing about this parable. We are not supposed to primarily see ourselves in the dying man or in the Samaritan. We're supposed to see ourselves in the lawyer. So let's walk through this and we'll see what the Lord has for us in this familiar parable. So we set up the scene last week. And so we don't have to retread too much of that ground, but let's recall a few details of what's happening here. A lawyer or scribe came up to Jesus in order to put him to the test, in order to trap him. And when we say lawyer, right, we must not think of a lawyer in our modern American legal system. This, this lawyer was someone who was an expert in Torah and the law of God and was part of the religious elite. He goes up to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To the lawyer's surprise, Jesus throws the question back at him and it, Answers his question with a question. What does the law say, Jesus asked. The lawyer likely thought that Jesus was a radical religious teacher who has cast off the law, but really Jesus is showing he affirms the law even more than this so-called expert in the law does. The lawyer answers with a combination we noted last week of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. He says, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart and with all your soul and with all your Strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as what? Yourself. Love God, love neighbor. That's what the scribe says is the answer to how to inherit eternal life. And it's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 when asked by religious leaders what the greatest commandments of all are. So lawyers right, and Jesus affirms this by saying, you've answered correctly, do this and live. Or do this and you will be living. Now last week we zeroed in on the first command of love God. And so let's think about this idea of loving neighbor as self, which Jesus illustrates in verses 30 through 36. But just think about that command, love your neighbor as yourself. As you marinate on that, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, Jesus actually heightens this in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 when asked about the greatest commandments because he says, love the Lord your God. He says the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he says this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see what he did there? Jesus says that love for God and love for neighbor are alike in that they are inextricably tied. One cannot love God and not love people. If you love God, but you don't love your neighbor, that lack of love calls into question your love for God. Do you see? Jesus believes that if one has experienced the love of God, that they'll not only respond with love towards God, but that this love will cause them to love other people. He believes love experience will be an altering love that makes you see the world different. In other words, how you respond to the first, loving God, will determine how you respond to the second, loving others. When you obey the second, it shows that you have embraced the first. Do you see? Daryl Bach says it this way, devotion to God is expressed by devotion to others. So that there is no distinction between devotion to God and treatment of people. They go together. Jesus encourages total love for God and humankind. This is why in John, in 1 John, we're told that we love because God what? First loved us, and so that we would love one another, and that if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? A liar, and the love of God is not in him. But understand that the Bible's continual insistence that we love others, and if we don't, then we aren't of God, is not some sort of salvation by works, wherein our love for people earns us salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying here either. When he says, do this and live, Rather, love for people is evidence that one loves God. It doesn't earn it, it shows it. The love, that, that love has been received and tasted from God in Christ. You think of a tree, okay? Think of a tree. When you see a tree that has leaf and bud and fruit, what do you conclude? You don't say, ah, the leaves and fruit are giving that tree life. Is that what you say? No, because you know that the life of a tree doesn't come from what it produces, Life comes from the roots. You look at leaf and fruit on a tree and say, those leaves, that fruit, there is proof that the tree has life. Likewise, if you see a tree in your yard that should be bearing fruit but isn't, you don't go, you know what? I'm going to go buy some fruit and staple it to the tree so that I can have life again. You wouldn't do that, right? You simply would conclude that the tree is dead inside as evidenced by the lack of good fruit. You with me? Likewise, Jesus calls to, to love neighbor as self is simply that loving neighbor will be the fruit of one who has life of love from God. This is not then a way to life. It's a way of life. These commands in the parable of the Good Samaritan then does not advocate for earning salvation, but simply advocates for living out one's covenant relation with God, which is what the Christian faith and the whole Bible seek. So in other words, to do the law means in essence to love. To live by the Spirit means to love and do righteousness, as Romans 8 tells us. But see, just as Jesus won't allow for this compartmentalization of our lives in relation to his rule like we saw last week, he will not allow for compartmentalization of our loves either. You simply cannot love God and not love people. That's why he says in Matthew and Mark, the second command is what? Like it. It's like the first. There simply can be no separating love for God and love for neighbor. No allowance is given of such things by Jesus here or elsewhere. Now, again, consider the intensity of the love. 
Love your neighbor what? As yourself. That's a big deal, isn't it? That's a big deal. How much do you love yourself? Yes, you, who loves you with the intensity that you love yourself? Now, let's be honest. You love you some you. Yes? You are the president of your fan club. And you do whatever it takes to care for yourself. You make sure you are clean. You make sure you eat. You make sure your basic needs are taken care of and more. The foremost thought in your mind, even for the most selfless people, is how to care for oneself. We go out of our way for ourselves in every conceivable way. Do you see where I'm going with this? The command then is that you, the way you care for yourself, you are to care for others. You think of the intensity of the care you take for yourself, and then, you know what you do? Likewise to other people. Care for others with the same level of care that give you give to yourself. If you don't, then you aren't living, you see? But now this text is not saying what modern people want it to say. Some people say that, this just sounds like our culture, doesn't it? Some people say that when Jesus calls for us to love neighbor itself, that he's calling us to love ourselves. That's not what's happening here, okay? Jesus isn't commanding us to love ourselves because no such command is needed, is it? We don't need to be told to love ourselves. We just do it. And the radical way in which we love ourselves is the reason for basically all problems in the world. Klein Snodgrass says this, recently has become popular to interpret the command, love your neighbor as yourself, as a justification for self-love. This understanding should be rejected. The intent with as yourself is equivalent to as if your neighbor were yourself. Do you see? Jesus' call to love neighbor as self is to love them in the same way, with the same care, with the same consideration, with the same intensity as you love who? Yourself. But now, in our context, the word love itself has been tainted, yes? It's primarily feeling. So what we are concerned with is whether or not we feel emotions of love towards our neighbor. And so we think, if I don't feel love, how can I act in love? Then we could say, I can't bring myself to feel love, so I won't act with actions of love towards them. Then our lack of feeling love for people who are unlike us becomes an excuse for inaction. What we must see is that Jesus is not primarily concerned with whether you feel like loving someone or not. He doesn't bother with that. If emotion was primary, what do we do with Jesus' command to love our enemies? Your emotions aren't primary here, no matter what our wacky culture wants to tell us. Since our feelings are great liars, they cannot be our primary guides. This isn't to say they're irrelevant, irrelevant, but they can't be trusted to lead us. Love here is an action more than it is a feeling, do you see? Act like you love your neighbor. Don't get bogged down in whether you feel like it or not. If you allow me, I'm going to cite C.S. Lewis for the third week in a row. He had a great way of approaching this. He called it good pretending. Have you guys ever heard of this good pretending? He said, don't sit and try to manufacture warm feelings for your neighbor. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor or not. Act as if you did. He said, pretend like you love them. Act with loving actions toward them, and you'll find one of the great secrets When you behave as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. 
This doesn't mean you approve of their conduct, he said, because even when I love myself, I sometimes don't feel a deep fondness for myself. I might even feel low towards myself because of my actions, and yet, as much as I hate my own cowardice or greed, I continue to love myself and seek my own good and happiness. Lewis said that you can pretend your way into reality. The Christian, he said, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. This is important because what the lawyer says in verse 29 is what we all do in our heart, isn't it? The lawyer responds to Jesus' affirmation of the commands to be the essence of the law, the essence of love, the essence of living. He asks what? Who is my neighbor? Now, this might be a reasonable question if Luke didn't tell us what his motives were. Well, what does Luke say? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer feels confronted with the very command that he himself said. Another way to say justify himself is vindicate himself. He feels a tightening. He feels a confronting that reminds him of when he wasn't a neighbor to people that he didn't think he needed to be a neighbor to. Who is my neighbor? He wants neighbor to be defined. He wants to limit a limit to be placed on who he has to be a neighbor to. He wants to know, is a Roman soldier, this occupying force, is he my neighbor? Do I have to love him? Do I have to love a foreigner? Do I have to love Samaritans? Do I have to love a tax collector? He wants to know, how far do I have to go with this? He wants to soften the demand and not feel a sense of obligation to others whom he doesn't feel love for and may not even like, to be honest. But don't you see that the confronting nature of the scene is supposed to press up against us and ask us if we have put limits on who we consider neighbor? We look at the lawyer, don't we? And we cast aspersions because he's obviously nefarious. Luke tells us his motives are all wrong. And we see him try to justify himself and ask, who is my neighbor? And we judge him for his narrowness. But if we stop there, we miss the force of the exchange of the parable. What we should do is self-reflect and ask ourselves, how have I limited who I will love? And how have I justified my doing so? We know less than in Jesus' day gravitate to people who are just like us. Isn't that true? We love those who love us. We love those who benefit us. We are drawn. We are attracted to people who share our age range and our, our age range and our race and our socioeconomic status. We naturally form into groups based on affinity because it's easy to love people who are basically like us. Because remember, we love us, some us. There's no safer place than in groups based on affinity. There's no more comfortable place in a collection of similar similars because we're less likely to be taken out of our comfort zone and challenged since everyone already agrees with us and shares our interests. That is, after all, why we gravitated to one another in the first place. We don't mind being neighbors to people we like, do we? But then what's really special about that? Jesus says in Matthew 5 that even pagans love those who love them and are like them. Even people who don't know God at all love their friends, and people who could benefit them back. What's so special about that? 
It's not that there's anything wrong with it, but there's nothing special about it either. If this lawyer loves fellow lawyers and fellow Jews, so what? You don't need the gospel for that. Charles Coral said this, Jesus taught that loving only those who express love in return cheapens and degrades Christian love. This kind of sentiment is not true love, but is actually self-serving pragmatism. That's what the lawyer wants. Let's be honest. It's what we want too, because we're devoted to our own comfort and ease. To be able to define neighbor narrowly to fit into what we are already doing would be great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? Then we wouldn't have to change anything. But we're already loving people we naturally consider neighbors, so let's check that box and boom, eternal life. Not so fast, says Jesus. Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set up so that people may feel they have completed their obligation to God. Love itself will not allow for boundaries to be set up where we can say, I've loved enough. Nor does it permit us us to choose those we will love and limit the love that God calls for toward only people we would love, even if we never knew Christ at all. Don't you see that even asking the question, I need you to get this, even asking the question, who is my neighbor, is the exact wrong place to start. When you begin with the idea that another human can possibly fit into a category called non-neighbor, you're already thinking wrongly, and you need to begin again. In other words, the question, who is my neighbor, ought never be asked. There's no space in Jesus' concept of love that allows for a person to be in a category non-neighbor. James Edwards says this great word in his commentary. He says, for the lawyer, neighbor is a noun. Neighbor is an object to whom one owes duties, burdensome duties that the lawyer desires to avoid. For Jesus, neighbor is a verb, a way of behaving towards people in need that gives life to both giver and receiver. So one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. Do you see? Lawyer thinks he can will out of obligation to love dissimilar people or even his enemy his, by narrowly defining neighbor. So he asks, and who is my neighbor? hoping Jesus will define it as narrowly as the lawyer does. But see how Jesus responds? How does Jesus respond to his question? Does he give the lawyer an answer? Does he give the lawyer a list of people to love? Here's the people. You got a, you got a pen and paper? Write this down. Here's who you can love. No, he launches into this story instead. It reminds me of, you guys remember the old wrestler, Rowdy Roddy Piper? He used to say, just when you think you have all the answers, I change the questions. Jesus changes the question. And he gets to the heart of the matter. The question, who is my neighbor, is the wrong question. The real question is, who can I be neighbor to? And it's one that should be asked in the heart of the asker, moment by moment and day by day. As Snodgrass says, love does not begin by defining its objects. It discovers them. So the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? Jesus launches into a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. He was stripped and beaten, and they departed, and they left him half dead. Everyone knew this road in this story. His audience knew exactly. It was a notorious road that was 17 miles long, and when Jesus says, you notice he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He meant it, since elevation went from 2,600 feet above sea level sea level to 820 feet below sea level. And there was a drop about 200 feet per mile on this road. It was well known to be dangerous, because 
There was many twists and turns and caves and hiding spots for robbers to crouch in and jump out and attack unsuspecting people. So a man is walking. Just a man, right? What's it say? He's just a man, just, just a human, a mere human. No other identity is given to us by Jesus. He's just a man, and he's walking, and he meets the same fate that countless others have met on this road. Robbers pop out, and the man is outnumbered. They beat him, they strip him, they take all of his money, and they leave him half dead, which indicates that he, this man is fighting for his life. And you know, I have to do a Princess Bride reference here, right? <laughs> it's a layup, okay? You remember when our hero Wesley was captured and tortured? course you remember and he's you remember Casey you remember no uh <laughs> he was on the brink of death and and Inigo and Fezzik they save him and they take him to Miracle Max in hopes that he can save cure Wesley and Inigo says to Miracle Max Wesley is dead he can't talk to which Miracle Max says whoa ho, ho, look who knows so much it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead there's a big difference he says between mostly dead and all dead mostly dead is slightly alive with all the all dead, well, with all dead, there's only one thing you could do. And Inigo asks, what's that? And Miracle Max says, go through his clothes and look for loose change. Well, this man is in similar shape, okay? He's on the brink of death. He is mostly dead. If he does not get help soon, he will be all dead. And since he's been stripped, he has no coins to go through his pockets through, right? And if you're reading or hearing the story for the first time, imagine, go back, read the story for the first time when Jesus says, by chance, you see how he phrases that? By chance, a priest was going down that road. You'd think, thank God, thank God, here's a servant of God, ministers in the temple, represents the height of piety in our nation, he'll come to that man's aid. But then what happens? Notice that the priest was also going down the road, which means he was likely heading home from service in the temple where he would have recited multiple times the two great commands to love God and love neighbor. And the priest saw him. And he passed by on the other side. He saw him. He looked at him. He saw a mere human being in need, laying on the road, dying. In fact, it seems the dying man was on the side of the road that the priest was on. Doesn't it? He was literally in his path. So what does he do? He crosses over to the other side. He continued on his way. Well, next came down the road a Levite. And Levites, if you're unfamiliar, were sort of assistants to the priests. They were given the lesser duties in the temple. So he's coming, guess from where? Serving in the temple too. And he comes down the road. What does he do? He came to the place. He saw him. And he passed by on the other side of the road. You know what's interesting, as an aside, is that every character in this story does at least three things. They come and see, they do something, and then they go. Even the robbers, we are told, came, saw, did something, and departed. Every character does this, but only one does the right thing. But why didn't the priest and Levite render aid? What's it say? You know, there's much speculation has been bandied about for these motives, but they all miss the point. They all miss the point. If we're looking to give these guys some excuses for their inaction, we're doing something Jesus isn't doing. Jesus doesn't tell us why they didn't help. He simply tells us that they didn't, which means they were supposed to. It doesn't matter what the excuse is. Do you see? Because no excuse will do. You know, many years ago, I heard a story. Always stuck with me. I imagine it might stick with you too. The story happened in 2016 in New Delhi. 
And a 36-year-old man was walking one morning, and he was hit by a car who hit him and drove away, hit and run. And all of this was caught on street cameras. And subsequently, those cameras showed hundreds and hundreds of people just passing by him as he was laying, dying in the street. Only one person stopped and approached him. It was a rickshaw driver who went up to him and stole his phone. Finally, after laying there for 30 minutes, one of the man's friends saw him, got him to the hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. You know, in response, the government created a law that would give people monetary reward if they saw someone like that man and helped them. And guess what it's called? Good Samaritan scheme. Is that what it takes to get people to render aid? Money? Now, we still want to ask in the case of this man in New Delhi, don't we? Why didn't anyone help him? There was a human being dying in the street. No one helped or even checked on him. Why? It doesn't matter. Don't you see? It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter why the Levite and priest didn't help in this story either. Because listen, listen, we aren't supposed to check their motivations. We're supposed to check ours. This is why the parable is uncomfortable, do you see? If we boiled down this whole thing, just be nicer to people. Then we could leave today and we could feel great. And we go make sure we give a waiter at lunch more than 15%. And then this is fulfilled, right? I did the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's not the point. We're not supposed to ask of the Levite priest, why didn't you help? We're supposed to rather ask, why haven't I? In other words, maybe the question is turned around on us, like Jesus turned the question on the lawyer. Maybe just when we think we have the answer, Jesus has changed the question. Maybe we're supposed to ask ourselves, when I saw a mere human in need, as we inevitably do in life, and I didn't help. What was the reason? Have I, we're supposed to ask ourselves, been like the priest and Levite where I came and I saw someone in need, but then I just carried on my way? Or perhaps I passed them on the other side to avoid them. Why? Why did I do that? But see, the answer... (laughs) You see, the answer to why I didn't render aid really isn't the point, is it? Because no excuse will do. Not in light of what we've seen from Jesus. I mean, if no one on earth could be considered a non-neighbor by me, if there are no boundaries that I could construct that Jesus doesn't kick over with the gospel, what I will be doing when I give reasons are just thin justifications. All of our justifications, all of our self-vindication for inaction when we saw a mere human in need melt away when we remember the gospel. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a little book called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. And in it, he handled some common objections to helping those in need during his time. You know, if you go read this book, which you could access it for free online, the excuses are frighteningly similar to our day. One objection was that we can't afford to. I can't afford to help. To this, Edward says, what you mean is you can't help them without sacrificing and bringing suffering on yourself. But that's how Jesus relieved you of your burdens. And that's how you must minister to others with theirs. Another objection, one that is especially common in our day, is that the person in need brought their problems on themselves. 
I mean, you can, look, you can even look at this parable and you can say, why is that man on that road in the first place? Why is he going down the road in the first place? He shouldn't have been there. He brought this on himself. He knew it was dangerous. When we see someone in need, look at your heart, is our first thought. They probably got into this themselves. Or do we think they should just work harder to get themselves out of this? What does our friend Jonathan Edwards say to that? He said, Christ loved us, was kind to us, and was willing to receive us, though we brought our misery upon ourselves. He said that even if the person is in need is idle, we are not thereby excused from our all obligation to relieve them unless they continue in those vices. If they continue not in those vices, says Edward, the rules of the gospel direct us to forgive them. For Christ has loved us and pitied us and greatly laid out himself to relieve us from that want and misery which we brought on ourselves by our own folly and wickedness. We foolishly and perversely, he says, threw away those riches with which we were provided upon which we might have lived and been happy to all eternity. Once you, do you see, internalize the gospel and you see that Christ loved you at your poorest, at your most ungrateful, at your most unlovely, at your most vulnerable, at your most miserable, even while you were an enemy, and that through his poverty you are made rich, loving image bearers will be your new normal because you have tasted the sweetness of the gospel and you're a different person growing into the likeness of Christ. See, whereas our sinful inclination will be to define neighbor down to our little group of friends or to give excuses for our passing by the person in need or to justify our inaction or coldness to the desperate, the gospel comes in and it rearranges our hearts to see the world as Christ sees it, as he saw you and me. And Jesus didn't look at us. Jesus didn't look at us. In our poverty and our spiritual bankruptcy, lying on the side of the road and say, they probably had it coming. Is that what he did? He didn't look at our former... And sometimes current ungratefulness is say, become more grateful and I'll save you. He didn't look at our lack of deeds and say, work harder and then you'll get what you've earned. No, instead he loves us and pursued us and saves us for the very reason that we could not save ourselves or clean ourselves up or earn a single good thing from him. And he thinks that those that experience that kind of ridiculous and lavish grace will go and love people in concrete ways to point them to the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. Well, Jesus is a good storyteller, isn't he? Which is why the story doesn't end with a bummer of the priest and Levite leaving the dying man to die. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he what? had compassion. This is something that the lawyer definitely was not expecting. He was probably thinking after the priest and then the Levite, the next person to show is probably like a Jewish layperson, right? Surely that's who the story's hero would be. Instead, it's the last person in the whole world that the lawyer would have expected, a Samaritan. Now you surely know that Jews, you've heard this parable taught and preached enough times that you know that Jews and Samaritans just hated each other, right? Loathed each other with a passion. They would constantly do things to mess with one another in order to hurt or frustrate them. This would be like if Jesus was telling the story today in Israel and the hero, hero of the story was the good Palestinian. It'd be like if he was telling a Republican this parable and the hero was the good Democrat. 
It'd be like if he was telling a Democrat, uh, telling a story to a Democrat and the hero was a good Republican. And as is the case with everything Jesus did and said, this was on purpose. Could the lawyer view a Samaritan as the hero? Could he get over his own prejudice and racism and call a Samaritan a neighbor and love him as himself? Could he help a Samaritan if he came upon one who was in need? This was meant to confront and challenge. Now notice what the Samaritan does. Like every other character, he comes, he sees, and he acts. Everyone else, they depart. That's their action. He stays and more. And what is the motivation for the Samaritan's action? Do you see in verse 33? Compassion. This isn't just a mere feeling bad for the dying man. This is a gut-level feeling of mercy. It's the same word used of Jesus in Luke 7 for the widow whose only son had died, and it's the same word Jesus will use in chapter 15 for the father in the prodigal son where he sees his son from far off and runs towards him. This is a feeling of compassion literally from the bowels, and so the Samaritan acts. All told, the Samaritan, did you notice, performed seven actions. Do you see him? And he performed, he has performed some of these actions to make up for the inaction of those who came before him. Look, look at the seven actions. Number one, he comes up. Two, he binds the wounds. Three, he anoints cuts with oil and wine. Four, he loads him on his animal. Five, he takes him to the inn. Six, he stayed and cared for him. And seven, he left a month's worth of room and board and even said, if it's more than that, I'm going to come back, put it on my tab, and I'll pay it. Everything the Samaritan does is either costly or risky. He comes, he sees the man, but instead of crossing the other side and passing by, he approaches the man to tend to his wounds, which means that he was opening himself up to be attacked by robbers too. His binding the wounds means he would have to use his own wine and oil and would likely need to tear his clothing to use his bandages. He puts the man on his own animal, which means he has to walk while this half-dead fellow uses his animal. And he goes to an inn, which would not have been in the middle of the desert. He would have to go into a town, so he has to go out of his way and change his schedule. Then he enters the town as a Samaritan, opening himself up to ridicule from the locals and assumption from the townspeople that he's responsible for hurting the man who's on his animal. Then he stays with the man at the inn overnight, which would mean he had to alter his plans. Then he opens up an account with innkeeper, and you know, innkeepers were notoriously shady people. And he promises to return to check on the man and repay the innkeeper for whatever it costs to take care of the stranger. This would be like you paying for a hotel of a stranger, and you leave your credit card with them. Samaritan did everything possible to care for the man. Everything within his ability to help, he did it. And he did it without a single thought of recompense. So Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to a man who, the man who fell among the robbers? There's only one answer, right? There's only one answer. If the call is to love your neighbor as yourself, there's no way the answer could be either the priest or Levite. <laughs> because they were, if they were dying, if they were dying in a road, guess what they would want done for them? What would the priest and Levite want to have been done if their family or friends were dying on the side of the road? What would they want? They would want help, but they gave none and thus did not love their neighbor as themselves. Have you ever heard of a, there's a project called Make Them Visible? Have you ever heard that before? It's from the New York Rescue Mission. And they did this video. I encourage you to look up later. 
uh, on YouTube. Not right now, please. Uh, where the video opens with this question, have the homeless become so invisible we wouldn't notice our own family members on the street? That's what it said. What they did was a social experiment where they put people in makeup and wardrobe to look homeless, and they put them on the street of New York where they knew those people's family members would come across them. Guess what? Not one single participant recognized their mother, brother, or wife. They walked right by them because they thought they were just homeless strangers. If they knew who they were, they would have stopped, right? You see how this changes? If it's not a family member, well, it's just another homeless person. But they are, in fact, a person. And that's part of the point of this parable, isn't it? There's a man and he's beaten and he's stripped and you can't determine who he is or where he's from. Will you help him? If you were in that position, would you want help? If your mother or father or brother or sister or son or daughter or niece or nephew or grandchild were in that position, dying on the side of the road, would you want someone to help them or see them as a nuisance or as someone who deserves their plight? You see how this changes? Everyone we pass and see in need is someone's child. They were held as a baby. They were nursed. They cooed and giggled. Aren't they a neighbor still? So, so the answer to Jesus' question can't possibly be priest or, or Levite. So he says, likely through clenched teeth, this lawyer, the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. So Jesus says what? You go and do likewise. You see what Jesus did? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, let's consider it another way around. What kind of neighbor are you? He's saying it, it isn't about who your neighbor is. It's about who you can be a neighbor to. And then what happened in the story? That's it, right? Did the lawyer go and do likewise? Did he, like the rich young ruler, go away sad? What does it say? It doesn't say anything. Why? Perhaps because it's being turned around on us. Maybe it's confronting us with the question, will you go and do likewise? So what defines a neighbor? What, what defines it in the parable? Do you see it? Two things, nearness and need. That's it. That's it. No one can be a non-neighbor. Jesus allows for no such narrow definitions. And so if we ask, as we are wont to do, as I am wont to do, who is my neighbor? We must go back to the beginning. Go back to the gospel. Because who is my neighbor is the wrong question coming from a wrong place that is ready to define someone as non-neighbor. Which must be a category that we allow Jesus to destroy in our hearts. Here's the essence of being a neighbor, having the sensitivity to see a need and then act to meet it. That's the essence of being a neighbor. Let me say it again. Having the sensitivity to see a need and act to meet that need. See, what we want next is action steps, isn't it? 
Some of us, you, some of you got, I know some of you guys are the type of person who hears this and goes, okay, Vaughn, I'm getting it, we're vibing, tell me some things I could do, right? <laughs> Give me some concrete steps to do in order to be a neighbor, but that won't do either. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the parable. He said, I want to do God's will, but he does not tell me how to set about it. The commandment does not give me any clear directions and does nothing to solve my problems. The answer is, you are the neighbor. Go along and try to be obedient by loving others. Perhaps you still think you ought to think out beforehand and know what you ought to do. To that, there is only one answer. You can only know and think about it by actually doing it. He says, it's no use asking questions, for it is only through obedience that you can come to learn the truth. Fact is... As Snodgrass says, this parable doesn't tell us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. But it creates a reality that challenges our passivity and self-interest. See, the answer is not do steps one, two, three, and four. Then you have fulfilled this command to love your neighbor as yourself. The answer is let the gospel sink into your bones. Respond by being on the lookout every single day for people in need, because they're there. Be like the Samaritan and see. Truly see people and spot needs, then meet them, even if it costs, even if they could do nothing for you in return. Do you see? The point isn't to do this and that. It's to be a different kind of people who lives differently. It's, it's, it's not to only help someone broken down on the side of the road or drowning in a lake. <laughs> These extreme examples, it's to see the most mundane needs of people, to have a heart that's moved to compassion with eyes that spot needs and then responds. It's to see needs and then if the impulse pops up, it'll pop up maybe even today, where we start to justify our inaction, we remind ourselves of the gospel. Remember that our broken heaps of bodies were on the side of the road, that we were enemies of God, who got ourselves into our own mess. But God saw us, and he crossed over more than a road from heaven to earth, and he did far more than Samaritan did. He didn't just pay an innkeeper and change his schedule. He died in our stead. And he thus says, see how I have loved you. See how it was costly. Internalize that love. Dwell on that love then go and love in a self-giving way. This ha is how, in part, we show that we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength by loving our neighbor as ourselves. With a community and a world lying half dead in the road, those who have been purchased by Christ have only one choice. Go and show them the love of Jesus. Even if it costs even if no repayment is possible, even if they are different than us because that's how Christ loved us.